I called Crime Stoppers first. The person on the phone actually chuckled and she said to me, what do you mean street harassment? The voice you just heard belongs to a woman named Gigi. She's uh, recounting a very frustrating experience that she had in trying to report an incident of sexual harassment that took place in central Sydney, uh, near Town Hall, to be precise, which is sort of a very busy area of the CBD. We're going to talk a little bit more about her experience in a minute, but for the purpose of this episode, I'm going to propose a bit of a retake on an old saying. If a girl is groped in a city and nobody sees it, did it really happen? Now, before anyone out there starts hollering at me, of course it happened, Jan, there's a reason that I want you to kind of consider this question a little bit, because this is the way that our society currently sort of looks at street harassment. It's rarely talked about. It's not that easy to see. And when we try to report it, it's kind of hard to prove slash find the person who did it. Like it never really happened. Now, you and I both know that harassment, I think, has quite big consequences in the lives of us girls, especially in how we move around public space. So this episode is all about how we make the invisible visible. Let's do it. Sexism and the City. G'day everyone. You're listening to Sexism and the City. It's a Plan International Australia podcast. And if you don't know about Plan, you should find out because they are all about equality for girls. Take it from me. I'm your host, Jan Fran. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, And a heads up for you before we dive into this episode, it does deal with themes of sexual harassment and assault. Uh, It might not be hugely suitable for children. I'm just going to put that one out there. All right, let's go back to Gigi and that incident that happened in central Sydney. So we're going to set the scene here. So I was in Town Hall. Which is a very busy area of Sydney. It's central Sydney, yep. Yes, it is central Sydney and it was maybe 9.30pm, between 9.30 and 10pm. So were there a few people around at that time? Yes, there was people. It's quite a busy area. So I think at night time it's still pretty busy. There was still a lot of people around. Gigi's on her way home. She's leaving Town Hall Station towards Hyde Park. That's a very big park in the middle of Sydney and sort of walking towards a bus stop. As she crosses the road, a man passes her by crossing the road as well. Just some random dude in the crowd. He starts shouting things at her. I was walking on the street and he said, do you want to come back to the hotel with me? And I don't know him. I don't understand why there is an invitation to go back to a hotel from somebody that I haven't even had eye contact with. So you didn't even clock him necessarily. You just heard him yelling or speaking in your general direction. Yes. I'm going to state the obvious here, okay, Uh, and say that probably every girl slash woman slash person has had an experience like this, right, where some guy yells some crap at you with no intention of it becoming a thing yeah like he's not flirting he's not trying to charm or proposition you he's sort of just yelling which is it's kind of just like abuse (laughs) right I said to my friend just hold on a minute and I turned around 
and I followed him to the other side of the road. And he obviously knew that I was behind him. And he said, look, I don't have time for this. And I said, what do you mean you don't have time for this? You asked me to go back to the hotel. So, like, let's have a conversation. If you have time for me to go back to the hotel with you, like, why can't you have a conversation with me? Rather than answer her, the dude walks away. I felt really offended. for the fact that I turned around and I yelled back at him, he got me angry enough and you know, upset enough and disrespected enough for me to actually stand up and say to him that I was angry and upset and all of these things, you know, (laughs) asking me to go back to the hotel with him and then telling me I don't have time to actually chat with you is very diminishing. It's very humiliating. Like, I could tell that this person was not only was not only disrespectful, but he really wanted to make me feel bad. I think this experience, sadly, is not a unique one, you know, and most girls and women would probably just leave it at that, like kind of just put it down as one of those kind of crappy experiences that just happens because, I don't know, we have certain genitals? I don't know. So after all of this happened, I cried a lot on my way home and I spent a while that night awake thinking about what had happened and thinking what I can do because I think the biggest thing for me was this man is going to go and do this to other women as well. I'm not going to be the only one. So Gigi made a call to Crime Stoppers, which was the part that you heard at the start of this episode. So let's let's just hear that again in context now. I called Crime Stoppers first. And they said, the person on the phone actually chuckled and she said to me, what do you mean street harassment? You could tell she was, she thought it was funny that I was trying to report street harassment, which was quite confronting and humiliating as well, because I was already in a position where I had cried for a long time the night before and I had stayed awake, you know, many hours on that night and then calling somebody that is supposed to support me. And she says to me, this is funny that you're trying to report this thing. It's really not acceptable. So she told me that I had to call the police, and I went and did that. I called the, the, the closest police station to where it happened. So I called Surrey Hills Police Station, and they said to me, there's nothing they can do about that. They can't really file anything. They can't really look at any evidence. Nothing. There is nothing they can do. They said the only thing they could do is if I wanted to file a restriction order, then I could do that. So we could go and see. But it's a stranger that I'm probably not going to see again. But it's also a stranger that is going to go and do this to all the women. So recapping, there are a few things going on here. When Gigi tried to get help from Crime Stoppers, she says she was laughed at. Not great. When she called the cops, they were a little bit more understanding, but they acknowledged that I think without good evidence or at least something to identify the dude with, there's not all that much that they can do, even if they wanted to. And herein lies the problem with the way that authorities handle or deal or have the scope to deal with sexual harassment like Gigi's experience. 
there's just not a whole lot that they can do about it. So it is sort of brushed off as not a big deal. We've all heard it. That's the, it was a joke, take it as a compliment. What were you wearing? What did you drink? What did you do to cause, you know, this person? Why are you making a fuss? Et cetera, et cetera. That's Kate Jenkins, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner at the Human Rights Commission. She says that sexual harassment is actually quite a bit more serious than most people would have you believe. Those in a kind of psychological point of view are called violent supportive attitudes and it's been a very common Australian attitude but in family violence we've started to realise that's been a, a big problem on why we haven't been noticing the terrible you know murders and uh, violence in homes because people are always justifying the behaviour rather than questioning it. There's a quote that comes to mind here and uh, it's a quote that has come up a few times behind the scenes while recording this podcast, it goes something like, not all disrespect ends in violence against women, but all violence against women begins with disrespect. And it's a quote that I have heard used again and again, mainly by our former PM, Malcolm Turnbull. Now, the fact that we're talking about it right now is a fantastic thing because then you know, I always say this is like, you know, a magic eye picture where you can't see it. And if you look really hard, you suddenly see it. And then you suddenly see it everywhere. And I think that's what's happening with sexual harassment. We've had a Me Too and suddenly, particularly men, are realising that was inappropriate. Because it wasn't directed at me, I never paid much attention in the past. But now I've noticed because people have said it's offensive. Remember those magic eye pictures? I don't know if any of you had them growing up. They sort of just look like random shapes and colours and patterns and you don't really think there's anything there. And then you kind of concentrate, scrunch your face up a bit, kind of narrow your eyes, hold it at a particular angle. And then this 3D image starts to emerge from within these seemingly nonsense patterns. And I reckon that's sort of the moment that we're currently living in right now with sexual harassment, right? Like all over the country, the world, we're just sort of concentrating and moving the picture around a little bit and now we see it. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's there. I think that for so long we saw those individual things that were happening to us as individual cases, isolated cases, and if you're a woman, you probably internalise that as something that you did that created that situation. That's Suzanne Legina, the CEO of Plan International Australia. I think we are having many more of those conversations now, and in a way, that's what the Free to Be map did too. It says, no, you know what, it's not rare, it's not confined just to powerful or famous people, it's everyday, it's ubiquitous, and it's systemic. So that at least allows us to kind of say, all right, we're not going to solve this through an individual measure. We're going to have to tackle it from lots of different angles. And for me, that is like a breath of fresh air because finally, if we can see it, then we can start to look at, okay, what do we do to change it? When it was underneath the surface, when you thought it was just you, when you held it inside your heart, when you were shamed by it, when you were, you know, not even telling your friends, not telling your mum what happened to you, when you were thinking like I was as a young woman when I was harassed by my driving instructor that I must have created this situation. I just feel like there's this kind of freedom in being able to say, you know what, it's something going on in the world we're living in, and we can't change it until we can look at it that way. 
Suzanne's not the only one who's looking at it this way. In August 2018, France took the, well, rather bold step, I would say, of making sexual harassment illegal. So the new law against sexual violence in France makes catcalling in the street a crime that is punishable with on-the-spot fines, and such behaviours include commenting on a woman's looks or clothing, intrusive questions, unwanted following, and upskirting. And for those of you who don't know what upskirting is, um, how does one describe upskirting? It's basically where, like, someone uses a mirror or a phone to sneakily kind of take a picture up your skirt while you're walking or standing there. It's disgusting. Like, it's it's actually disgusting. Yeah, so that's punishable by a fine, right? So I believe the real game is to change society, to lower the threshold in terms of what we tolerate regarding sexist and sexual violence and redefine what we will collectively accept. And street harassment is something that now is absolutely unacceptable. That's Marlene Schipper, the State Secretary for Gender Equality, explaining the move during an interview with radio station Europe One. The obvious criticism, right, of this move, and it's been pointed out by, well, I... It's sort of been pointed out by everyone. How do you actually police this? What happens when a girl's walking home at night and she gets harassed by, you know, some random and actually no one is around to see it? First of all, it's important to know that there are 10,000 police officers who are going to be recruited, trained and equipped to do just that. So from this point onwards, fines will be given in clear cases of street harassment. There will also be cases where fines won't be given because there won't be a police officer behind each woman. However, I think what's important is the social aspect of this ban. To say that the law forbids anyone to insult, intimidate, threaten or follow women in public spaces. You know, there isn't a police officer near every traffic light either. And yet, in most places around the world, people respect the law that says not to go through a red light. And that, according to the French government at least, is actually the strength of the move, is the point of the move. It's not so much in catching every dodgy catcaller, but it's in creating a culture that says, you know, we as a society don't accept this. It means, at the very least, right, that you're not going to get laughed at when you report street harassment to Crime Stoppers. And the law in France is actually being enforced. So according to The Guardian, in September, a drunk guy hopped on a bus in southern Paris and, quote, slapped a woman's bottom and, quote, made an insulting comment about her breasts. What a hero. Uh, He was sentenced to three months in prison for the slap, which was considered an act of outright sexual aggression, and he had a 300 euro fine for the offending comments. So that's 482 Australian dollars for basically making an insulting comment about a woman's breasts. Apparently, it's reported to be the first time that the law has been enforced in France. So that's kind of how it works. I don't think any one solution on its own is going to revolutionise things, but all the individual things together is what will change things. So that's one solution. Action from the top down. But what if we wanted to approach this from the ground up? So my producer Kayla was in Uganda recently. Yeah, that's where we're going. Uh, Let me set a bit of a scene here for you before we proceed. Kampala is very bustling, 
right? The, there's the kind of chaos element of it. The cars are caught in traffic jams. The streets are just heaving with taxis, hawkers, and things called boaterboaters, which are essentially motorbike taxis. There's a real energy, right? Like street vendors will come up to you and try and sell you things. There's phone charges laid out on the sidewalk, snacks, shoes, whatever, you name it, it's there. You know, it's, it's full of color and there's a lot of fun. But it also has a dark side. You hear stories of crime, sexual abuse, kidnapping, harassment, murder. Many girls there don't feel safe on the streets from essentially sexual violence, abuse and harassment. But Plan International works with them to try and make their city safer, right? So it creates a platform for girls to discuss the issues that they face with their families, with their communities and, and I think this bit's crucial, with the authorities so that they can have a say in the way that their cities develop, which I think is a valuable exercise just quietly in any city, really. So it's great to see that it's happening in a city like Kampala. So Kayla spoke with Sharon, Jacqueline and Sahara to get a sense of how much of a problem sexual harassment is in a city like Kampala. So here's Sharon. From one one year to 14 years, you're, you're being considered as a young girl, but when, from 14 to, to maybe 100, you're considered to be old. When you grow breasts, that means you're old. Uh, Zahara's 17. She says she's frequently harassed. Yes, girls in, in the city, they face rape, they are defiled, they are harassed, they are abused, and many others. One day I was going to the market to buy some vegetables. A man called me and told me that, come here, young girl, come. Are you sweet? Come here and I eat you. He said, I can eat you. Yeah. He was an old man even. Edge bracket of my dad. One of the strategies that the Safer City Project uses to make the area safer is by holding what's called a safety walk with all the girls in the area, right? So together they go on a walk at night with security and they effectively sort of document all of the risks that they identify in their community. The place, first, it was dirty. Yeah, that place was very... On my side, I think it's like a hell. Mm, hell. Yeah. Mm. Well, for me, what I noticed... The place has a lot of noisy businesses around in that if a girl is walking at night and she maybe tries to show she cannot be heard if she's in problem, uh, the trenches were big and dirty in that they need maybe bridges because if a young kid is using the place and he falls in, the water is dirty. Uh, the other thing, uh, they like toilets because they use the flying toilets. You. <laughs> So what what is a flying toilet? A flying toilet. You get a polythene bag, you go inside your house, you put your poop in, and then you go out. You, when you look around and you see there are no people around, you wave it like this. Oh. And throw. <laughs> is that what a flying toilet is? So wait, yeah, so wait, a flying toilet. As a group, they choose the most significant risks to their safety that they'd like to see addressed. Um, it could be lighting, alleyways, loud noises, you name it. So what was the bad thing that was selected from yesterday's walk? There are many. Oh, you can't the first why. one, there are no security lights. No security lights. No security lights. And the place is dirty, is very dirty. The places are very dirty. 
And then a meeting is held with the community, uh, inviting the police and the local authorities and anyone that really has a stake or a say in these issues. And the girls present their findings to that group of stakeholders, right? And they build a case for why these issues need to be addressed. Here's Jacqueline. I went for a safety work in 2016 and it was really good because how it has actually changed the safety of girls. After walking around, we found out that we don't have security lights, the trenches are dirty, we have a lot of corridors, and then we had to look out for solutions. Then the other thing was uh, the street signs. Well, like our streets don't have signs, so if I get lost, I don't know how to start. Because the only thing you can say, I'm around a tall building that has no name. I'm around a big trench, there are a lot of trenches around. So I able to talk to them and the some streets have been provided with names and then others have not yet been provided with names because they're trying to pick the good names for the roads. So their particular campaign for street lighting was so successful that the local government there actually credited it for the rollout of a city-wide lighting project so that women and girls could feel safer walking home after dark. I do feel more welcome because if I use that clean environment, if I'm passing on a clean road, I'd feel fine. But if I use a road that we used yesterday, I would not feel fine using it each and every day. And then with the lights, at least if I'm walking, I can see the person ahead of me and the person can be able to see me. So girls having more of a say in the way their city is designed is crucial because these experiences can then be taken into consideration. And I suppose, you know, in the end, this is sort of what this whole podcast series is about, right? Just seeing the unseen or making something invisible visible or putting it on the table, if that makes sense, so that everybody listening can actually see it too and has a choice about what they want to do about it. So I think there's a few things you can do then when you start to see it, you know, depending on where you are and who you are. That's Suzanne Legina again. She's from Plan International Australia. You can start to kind of say that's not okay. And you can use your power as a bystander or in solidarity with your friends or you can be with your group and you can start to say, that makes me feel uncomfortable. We have to have the laws that say it's not okay. When things happen, we need to be able to have those enforced. We need the campaigns that change behaviour and help people to understand it. We need the services and support for people when it does happen so they're protected and looked after. And we need the sort of structural changes in the way our cities and our workplaces are organised so that it's not okay, where there's more more respect, I think, between men and women. Because you know, at the heart of it, I think, is you've got to take a kind of moral view that girls and boys, men and women, everyone, all the people are equal in their rights and dignity, that they're worthy of respect and to be treated as people in their own right. Basically, there are a lot of things that everybody can be doing, but it all boils down to this simple belief that we are all equal and we all have the right to access public areas equally. When we talk about change, I am becoming aware sometimes they get their defence on. They feel like what I'm talking about is about losing stuff. So when I talk about change, they think, oh, you want to take something away from us or this is going to mean that we lose out. 
I think we have to change it from that kind of zero-sum game. You know, what I think it means is it's it's going to be better for everyone. Equality is better for everyone. And, yes, in the process, I'm not saying it's not going to be uncomfortable. You know, if it's not a bit uncomfortable, I don't think we're growing. But I do think the ultimate result is it's better for everybody. Yeah. Do you feel optimistic that people are starting to heed that message? Damn right I do. We open this series with a statistic from the Pew Research Centre that 56% of men believe that sexism is over. Uh, It's not. (laughs) I wish that were true. But there have been some big wins, yeah, and that's thanks to ordinary people who have chipped away, not at this sort of enormous, unnamed, faceless behemoth that is the patriarchy, but at the everyday policies and practices, beliefs and behaviours that restrict and oppress and hold women back. Now, if you haven't already, I would encourage you to listen back to our episode now and then for what I think is a perfect example of this. Or at the very least, if you don't want to do that, Google Merle Thornton. You're welcome. And that's essentially what I'd kind of like to leave you with after this podcast series the sense that there is something that we can all do about gender equality. I went to a Catholic school and, look, I'm going to put it out there straight off the bat, I'm not very religious, but there was this mantra that we had at our high school which we would repeat every assembly, right? And it came actually from an Aussie Catholic nun named Mary McKillop, a very well-known nun. And the mantra was, you can't do everything, you can't do nothing, but you can do something. And so I would encourage all of you listening to think about that something that you can do. If you'd like to take more action on some of the issues that we have talked about or learn more about Plan's work, please head to the Plan International Australia website at plan.org.au forward slash podcast. You can also share your thoughts with me on Facebook, just find me under Janfran. I'm there. Send me a message. I'd love to hear from you. Sexism and the City is a Plan International Australia podcast. It is hosted by me, Janfran. The series is produced by Kayla Robertson. Associate producer is Gavin Neighbour. It's mixed by Gavin Neighbour at the Hallwood Recording Studio at the University of Melbourne. Researched by Andrea Kano Botero and Madeline Spencer. Artwork is by Donna Kelly. Theme music is by Paul Greenstein. That's all from me for now. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.